Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMP LP Louisville, broadcasting at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm a programmer here at the station. I do sustainability now and I co-host this Truth to Power program from time to time as well. This week on Truth to Power, I want to bring you a really important public meeting that happened in our city on January 11th about a big source of greenhouse gas emissions in rubber town on the west end of our city that not only affects our global climate future, uh, but residents immediately around the facility. It was a public meeting of the Louisville Metro Air Pollution Control District, or APCD, for a Title V construction permit for the Keymores Company, used to be known as DuPont, in rubber town. The proposed permit would allow the company to install equipment needed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, specifically emissions of HFC-23, a really powerful greenhouse gas. The meeting was an opportunity for members of the public to learn about the permit, ask questions, and discuss the project with both APCD and Keymore's staff. And I think it was a really unique and special one that I wanted to share with you. Uh, And it's also an important time to make some public comments about this proposal. A draft and summary of the permit and copy of the company's application are available at louisvilleky.gov slash APCD. And if you have questions or would like more information, you can call them at 502-574-6000. This has all come up because the US EPA has issued a HFC reduction rule. And there's more information about that online too, which you can find in the, you can find a link to all of these uh, online information and how to make public comment on the podcast version of this program, which you can find archived at forwardradio.org. Comments can be made through the end of the public comment period on Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. You can do an online form. You can email them more information again online. Uh, the purpose of the permit is to allow Keymores to install the equipment needed in Keymores uh, HFC 23 or trifluoromethane reduction project. HFC 23 has a large global warming potential and is it's not a volatile organic compound VOC or a hazardous air pollutant or a toxic air contaminant, but it is related to those emissions as well. Um, The permit will authorize the facility to install and operate equipment that has the potential to emit VOC emissions of chloroform uh, at a very small rate, 0.299 tons per year, and a total uh, hazardous air pollutant emission of chloroform, chlorine, hydrochloric acid, and hydrogen fluoride of 0.779 tons per year. And it's part of a larger project by Keymores to reduce HFC-23 at this potent greenhouse gas in order to comply with the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act and U.S. EPA's HFC 23 reduction rule. So uh, with no further ado, I'm going to play this public meeting for you, which is a great conversation with many members of the community. Uh, It does start off with uh, a little presentation about the topic from uh, APCD staff, uh, and then we'll dive in and hear some great public comment. Speakers include, and you're going to hear from first Rachel Hamilton from the APCD, as well as Matt King of the APCD, uh, and from Keymores, there's three folks, Corrine Greenberg, Sean Uhl, and Julie Johnson. But you'll also hear from Louisville Climate Action Network, Sarah Lynn Cunningham, Margaret Carrero, retired UofL ecologist, uh, Tom Fitzgerald from the Kentucky Resources Council, Ebony Cochran, an amazing community activist in West Louisville with React, uh, Tina Halbig, another amazing community activist from the United Nations Associations of Kentucky and the Floyd's Fork Environmental Association, Wallace McMullen from the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, and many other concerned citizens. So stay tuned. This is a great, informative, uh, important uh, topic in our community. Uh, And here it is for you on Truth to Power. So what are hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs? These are greenhouse gases that were intentionally developed as replacements for ozone-depleting substances, part of the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments. 
They're used primarily for refrigeration, air conditioning, aerosols, fire suppression, and foam blowing. The warming potentials, which is the measure of the relative climate impact of the greenhouse gas that can be hundreds to thousands of times greater than carbon dioxide. Because of current air conditioning use, HFC use is growing worldwide due to the phase out of ozone depleting substances and increasing use of refrigeration. So here in Louisville, Comores manufactures refrigerant gases at its Louisville works, including HCFC-22. HFC-23 is produced as a byproduct during the HCFC-20 production. So what's the public health consequences of the HFC as potent greenhouse gases? It's the climate warming potential of these HFCs that is of concern. They exacerbate climate change and may lead to extreme weather events and the corresponding public health threats, physical damage, and economic costs. HFCs, including HCFC-22 and HFC-23, are not regulated as hazardous air pollutants under the Clean Air Act or as toxic air contaminants under the district's Strategic Toxic Air Reduction Program. So how did we get here tonight? Back in December of 2020, Congress passed the American Innovation and Manufacturing It directed EPA to address hydrofluorocarbon by phasing down production and consumption by 85% over the next 15 years, maximizing the reclamation and minimizing releases from equipment, and facilitating the transition to next-generation technology through sector-based restrictions. In terms of regulatory rulemaking, the speed at which this rule has been proposed by US EPA and adopted is really remarkably swift. In May of 2021, EPA proposed, and then on September 24th, adopted the phase down of hydrofluorocarbons, establishing the allowance allocation and trading program under the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act rule. This rule sets HFC production and consumption baseline levels for reduction, establishes allocation and trading HFC allowances for 22 and 2023, proposes an enhanced compliance and enforcement system and requires companies that emit HFC-23 to either capture and sell that HFC-23 for consumptive use as part of their allocation or destroy the captured HFC-23 by incineration no later than October 1 of 2022. So that brings you up to where we are from a regulatory standpoint. I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Matt King, ABCD's Manager of Industrial Permitting. Thanks, Rachel. All right. So again, we have a permit out for public notice. It is not regulating these HFCs. That's being done at that federal level, but it, the facility is requesting to install some new equipment and to kind of replumb and connect that equipment. And that's the subject of the permit we've issued. We have on our proposed actions page, a copy of that proposed draft permit, the draft statement of basis, uh, the funding application, and the public notice, which uh, went out in our email list and in the Courier Journal, uh, documenting the timeframes and the, the process at hand. I want to get to your all's questions and comments, uh, but just a little bit more about the project. So again, the project is designed to reduce significant amounts of these greenhouse gases, um, but it also affects what I'll refer to as traditional air pollutants, uh, those hazardous air pollutants, VOCs, things like that. And so uh, a couple terms we use, or a term we use is potential emissions. And uh, in a general sense, that's what would the plant emit if it were running at full capacity. The maximum emissions, if the plant was fully utilized all day, every day, and you'll see a, a slight decrease in those VOCs. So after the project, if they were to run this facility uh, at maximum capacity, they would have less emissions than currently running at full capacity. 
And then you can see in the green, those HAPs, those hazardous air pollutants. Again, the HFCs don't fall into either of these categories, but the same that happened with VOCs, that under the current operating scenarios, if it were run at full capacity, the facility would emit about 12 tons of HAPs. Post-project at full capacity, it would be down around six tons of HAPs. But again, that's potential. Most plants do not run at full capacity, and it shows the actual emissions that are a good bit below potential, which is common in the industrial sector. So again, this permit is specifically proposing to authorize the addition of a little bit or several items of new uh, processing equipment, as well as kind of a re-piping of things. But these charts represent the plant-wide aspects of the facility. So this, again, public notice and comment period, we run a standard 30-day, but we've extended this uh, up until January the 18th, a week from today. If you can't find the stuff online, we have copies of the permit. You can call me, email me, pick one up at the office, and we will be accepting those written comments till midnight through the email and the link and until five o'clock if you wanted to hand deliver that or mail it. Members of the public can also request a public hearing. That again is that more formal process. It's more of a chance for folks to orally make their statements and questions and comments. And then we don't respond in that hearing and we provide a written response to those comments. I think we're gonna open up to questions. I do wanna hit one more time. This meeting is not official commenting. We're hoping it's beneficial to have that informal conversation. But if you think of a comment during the meeting, hit the link, email it to us shortly afterward or anytime in the next week. Mail it, email it, drop it off. I and mean, I really am glad to see so many folks on the meeting. And I think we'll be ready to open it up to questions and comments. I think I see Sarah Lynn Cunningham. Thank you. I have summarized, um, I should say I am Sarah Lynn Cunningham. I'm an environmental engineer and a co-founder and the executive director of the Louisville Climate Action Network. Uh, we currently consist of 48 organizations, 26 other nonprofits, 11 for-profit businesses, seven congregations and religious groups, and four educational institutions, plus a thousand or so and change uh, individuals. And we are very committed to cutting carbon pollution through voluntary efforts and better public policies. And, and we consider APCD's work as affecting public policy. I don't like to read the audiences, but I'm effectively probably going to do so, and my comments are only one page long, so it probably won't be too painful. The summary of our thinking about this proposed action is, because we see the elimination of Camor's superpotent HFC 23 greenhouse gas emissions as long overdue, we support achieving that goal as soon as possible. However, we also have serious concerns that we believe must be addressed. Even once Comores is permitted to make plant modifications needed to capture its greenhouse gases per the federal deadline, we believe it should not be regulated as an area source unless and until it verifies its eligibility for reduced accountability responsibilities. The basis of our concern, Comores, albeit then entitled DuPont, broke its 2015 promise to the Obama administration to eliminate its HFC 23 emissions by 2018. DuPont has had a long, long history of polluting Louisville and West Virginia. Plant managers can be reassigned elsewhere and their verbal commitments vaporized. 
to ensure that we completed our review within the comment period despite the year-end holidays, LCAN hired extra technical expertise to assist us with reviewing Camor's application and the draft permit, which we saw the number for it and all that. And we have provided both uh, Air Pollution Control District and Camor's a copy of his draft report and maybe not before the night's up, but certainly by tomorrow, I'll have his report posted on our website so that anybody else can see it. Based upon his research and his uh, feedback to us and our own perspective, we have multiple concerns, but the overriding three are these. Number one is transparency. We believe that transparency is the basis of accountability and that together they are a key foundation to democratic societies. We could not check numerous assertions in Camorra's application due to undefined, unattributed, and or unreliable assumptions used in its calculations and models. We don't know of a good reason for that transparency. We hope we're wrong on this account, but it, we couldn't find any way to see it any other way other than something doesn't add up. Number two, verification. We believe that verification should be encoded into the amended permit to show two things. Number one, whether the process modifications necessary to collect and separate Camor's flue gases, including the HFC 23 greenhouse gas, the volatile organic comp carbon compound, um, which is chloroform and three hazardous air pollutants, we want to know, does it really justify treating the facility as an area source? And secondly, does it really show that the project lowers the health burdens that Camorras places on our community? The permit should require Camorras to do more, whatever it takes. The permit should be amended to require Camorras to fix anything that the verification shows really wasn't what everybody expected. And then lastly, and noting that this is beyond APCD's jurisdiction, but it is something that Camorras can help to clarify, we seek verification that Louisville's greenhouse gas problem doesn't become West Virginia's air toxics program. Therefore, we ask Camorras and APCD to review our consultants reports and our concerns and the one page summary that I transmitted earlier uh, this afternoon as applicable meaning we don't expect APCD to uh, respond to the verification of what's going on in Virginia, but we're hoping Camorras will. And that we hope that those responses include transparency and verification requirements so that we can get this important work done. Carolyn, this is Rachel, and thank you so much for that summary. That's a very nice statement of your concerns, and I would ask that you submit that as a formal comment so that we can provide you with that fulsome answer as part of the record. Thank you for that. And I think I'll just add uh, briefly the removal of the once in, always in policy, which I'll try not to speak so jargony, but previously, once you were a major source for HAPS, you were always a major source for HAPS. Uh, those rules did change, and we will observe those rules that you, when you lower those emissions, you can step out of that major source status. But I, don't have specific answers for you, but in a general sense, this agency has really thought about that doesn't mean the elements of those major source rules entirely go away. We are going to look for our other authorities and make sure that we're not stopping anything that has been very beneficial uh, just because of that status change. Again, we'll give you a little more in writing and, and you know, every the de devil's in the details and, and words are cheap, but a lot of us share that concern. And I think there's some ways to 
not uh, immediately revert to the bare bones area source rules. Thank you. And we do hope to have some conversation, but I don't want just APCD to overtake. So, um, has a raised hand. Okay, uh, Tom, if you're able to go. Oh, that's okay, uh, Margaret. You go ahead. I just have a general question, and uh, it certainly isn't as specific. But I, I, I wondered what APCD already knows in terms of the processes. You know, what will happen in in inserting new technology to deal with HF. C23, what in general can one expect in terms of effects on the HAPS emissions? Is anything in general known? Or? I'll take a quick stab at that, and I hope some others might jump in, but uh, we had discussed in, a, in a, the concept that we call potential. So if you're running that plant at full capacity, not realistic, but it's a tool we use as regulators, that the proposed project would lower that potential. So if all other things are equal, we would expect lower emissions after the project. But, you know, that's production dependent. If you saw those actuals have been well below that potential. So the district is not able to confirm the exact change that might happen to emissions. As we get emissions data, that real world data, we would make that available. But the design should reduce emissions at that scenario where both worlds are operating at capacity. Yeah, I just meant relative to one another. Yes, yes. In terms of would HAPS go, I mean, maybe overall it would go down, but relative to dealing, you know, with uh, reducing HFC 23, would HAPS relative to that go up or down? The, the, the tightening of the ship to say that will capture more of the HFC 23 will also tighten those other pollutants. Okay. So there are, there are four of us representing Comores on this call tonight. We want to thank everybody for this opportunity. I'm the new site environmental lead here. Julie Johnson is our plant manager. She's on the call. Sean Uhl is our manufacturing technology director for the whole business line. He's on the call. And Jim McDonald from AECOM is our uh, principal air permitting consultant. He's, he's on the call as well. Okay, so the primary concern we have coming into this meeting is when the permit got posted for uh, public review, there's was a lot of misinterpretation, uh, presuming that because the emissions that got posted in the statement of basis were the VOCs and HAPs, those are the regulated pollutants, they were misinterpreted as being increases or new emissions, when in fact, they're just the resulting emissions that remain after the project. I want to be absolutely clear that this project will not cause any increases in any potential emit of any pollutant. The whole purpose of the project is to reduce the HFC 23 greenhouse gas by upwards of 99%, but it will also have the co-benefit of reducing the VOC potential emissions and the hazardous air pollutant potential emissions. Like, like Matt was saying, it's going to tighten the ship. There's nothing from the equipment that needs to be installed to allow this to happen that will create any new air pollutants. Um, we are not expanding any process capacity. We're not expanding throughput. There's not going to be any de-bottlenecking. We're just taking out some existing equipment and replacing it with tighter equipment that's going to allow us to capture HFC 23 and it's going to also have the co-benefit of reducing some of those VOC and HAP emissions. Uh, this is our, our money slide here. Um, here at the bottom, we've included the excerpt from the statement of basis and these are the, the two numbers that, that got reported. Um, what these numbers represent, these would be the end project or the post-project potential to emit regulated volatile organic compounds regulated hazardous air pollutants from the equipment that would be installed, the new and modified equipment. What this compares to, the, the table at the top, I just do some of our emission numbers into a quick spreadsheet, as currently configured, as the plant is operating right now, constructed right now, 
the VOC and HAP emissions from the same emission unit are 1.13 tons, potential tons per year, volatile organic compounds, and 1.6 potential ton per year hazardous air pollutants. After the project, after we take out some existing equipment and put in this new and modified equipment, the potential, all that we could possibly do with this existing process line is 0.3 tons per year of volatile organic compounds and just almost 0.8 tons per year of hazardous air pollutants. Just looking at the equipment that we're going to take out and replace with the new and modified equipment, we're looking at a 73% reduction in, in VOC potential and a 51% reduction in hazardous air pollutant potential, along with the greater than 99% reduction in these HFC 23 uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So I just want to make it, you know, I appreciated Matt's slide deck at the front. Um, I think he did a good job. This is just another way of looking that looking at that and I wanted to make sure everybody sees this up here. I do have a couple of other slides to raise to respond to the question that Sarah Lynn just raised about the, the destination facility. So we are Moore's Louisville Works at this facility the primary product is making the F-22 and as a byproduct we make the HFC-23 because of the AIM Act we'll no longer be able to sell or emit the HFC-23 so if the AIM Act compels that to be destroyed somewhere. We have a sister site in Washington, West Virginia. That facility already has a thermal oxidizer, a destruction facility to destroy HFC-23. We are already sending some of our HFC-23 to the Washington Works facility. The sister facility of ours has the constructed, paid for, built up and operating thermal oxidizer that has the capacity the existing capacity, as is, as already permitted, to take all the HFC-23 that we would generate here and incorporate it in. Um, it's already permitted. It already meets all the, the West Virginia emission standards. And as an added bonus, that location in Washington, West Virginia, is in an ozone attainment area, whereas at one point several years ago, there had been some consideration, would it be even desirable to build such a facility here, where of course we're in an ozone non-attainment area, and any additional source like that would, would not be good. But the fact is, it's already there, it's already built, they already have the capacity, and it's already been vetted through the permitting process. Anticipating this question, the facility has been inspected six times in the past five years, Washington Works this is, there have been no identified violations. This is um, stock testing data, from our sister facility, they showed this with us, and their destruction efficiencies, they do annual testing for um, HFC-23, and they do triennial testing for other pollutants, and we call this five nines. Uh, they're testing up to 99.998% efficiency. Um, they're only required to hit 99.99. Uh, this is from a couple years ago, when they were testing that expanded list of pollutants, and they were hitting 99, 99.99.96 as a destruction removal efficiency. So I just wanted to put that up there and share that and thank the district for this opportunity and uh, thank everybody else for, for your interest in, in supporting this project. We have a couple other hands up. It looks like Byron B. Yeah, I was just going to ask what the estimation of the 99% decrease in HFC, what uh, information was that based on? And Corinne may need to jump in, you know, the APCD is not going to have a role in that exactly. So I don't want to misspeak, but I believe that's what's being required in that federal regulation. And, you know, part of that is capturing it. And then that high destruction efficiency you saw at the uh, plant in West Virginia would 
I believe have to overall meet that 99. But Corinne, if you know different or if anyone else knows different, please I, speak I, up. I, was, yeah, I understand that. I was asking specifically what, um, how change in equipment is going to ensure that and what that is based on. I'm just going to defer to Sean Rule. Sean, can you take that? Corinne mentioned that the plant today recovers some of the F-23 uh, that's produced. In fact, more than half of what's produced today is a byproduct of the F-22 process. So the, the new equipment enhances that process to increase it from greater than 50% to greater than 99% ability to, to capture the F-23. Um, and then it would be transported for thermal destruction. Say that again, please, Sean. The new equipment that's being installed and enhances the equipment that we have today that we are already capturing a portion of the F-23 that's that's produced um, and, and is today being transported off-site for destruction. The new equipment enhances the ability to capture and increases it from greater than 50% to greater than 99%. So to me, the operative question is, are y'all willing to agree to verify that over, say, the next two years? It will be required, I think, to continue measuring F-23 production and then also what is captured. Is that so, Matt? Well, I want to again be clear that it's a federal regulation. That doesn't mean it, everything will work out perfectly, but I want to be clear. APCD will, uh, certainly if we are aware of something, we would reach out to the EPA, but but we're not in a role to verify that or to enforce that. And I, I'm not sure if Byron's question, but it may have been also more a little about how that actual collection will work. And if that's not of interest, we don't need to go down that path. But my, my statement is that that is not part of this permit or APCD's role with this project. Yeah, I was, I guess, specifically asking how it is captured and how can that information be verified, the efficiency of it. And I know that APCD may not have the reach to regulate on it, but would Camores be willing to provide that information for the public and the community around? That, that information will be reported to US EPA as a requirement of the AIM Act, and it's all going to go in one of those federal databases that's all available. Fitz had his hand up next. Thank you. First of all, um, hi. I want to tell the district I very much appreciate you doing another public meeting. I think this is much more informative than the formal stilted public comment periods, although we know we have to do that for, you know, to build the record. But I appreciate the dialogue. Uh, Corinne, I appreciate very much your presentation because you answered a couple of my questions. The reportage had, in fact, or at least I interpreted the reportage as suggesting that while there were significant, and I think everyone appreciates the uh, uh, reductions of a very potent greenhouse gas, the, the, the suggestion was that the offset of that was that there would be a net increase uh, in localized emissions. And of course, that is a, an environmental justice concern that, that uh, affects all of us, uh, not only the facility, but the folks who live on the other side of the fence, as well as the district. Uh, so I was pleased that, that in terms of the, the PTE, or the potential to admit that you're seeing a it looked like a 51 and 73 percent reduction in the uh in the vocs and men in the haps I, I guess just to follow up on that and i really would appreciate uh, following up on on sarah lynn's uh, question if we could get the slides that you presented tonight if you could like send a copy of those to matt and he could post them uh or send them to to us because um and i'll tell you why in just a second but but under normal operating conditions would we see that same reduction in those HAPs and VOCs uh, is, is, I guess, my follow-up question. Because, you know, PTE is one thing. Nobody actually produces or operates in that world. But, we, you know, we project the worst, right? What is the uncontrolled PTE? What is the, you know, what limits are you taking? Those sorts of things. But in terms of normal operating conditions, we're not going to see a spike in any of the, any of the HAPs or the VOCs, are we? 
No, we, we should not see uh, an increase in any of them because it's the capture equipment that's pulling it down. The VOC reduction is is only so much. What's, what's right. really, a really good news story here is that while we're capturing the HFC 23 where we are in the process, that's also knocking down the concentration of HCL in a gas stream that is going to the next emission unit. And because it's a lower concentration going to that unit, we're seeing significant or projecting significant reductions there because there's less going to it. So actual emissions should reduce at the same expected rate that potential emissions would reduce. Okay, that's excellent. With that, that was just my follow-up on that. And in terms of West Virginia, you know, all of us, including I'm sure you and the rest of the management team here in Louisville, don't like to take our problem and ship it somewhere else. Although, you know, particularly since everybody in this area is sensitive to that because they have been the ones that have had everybody else's problems shipped to them over the years. So um, it's helpful to look at the actual numbers from the stack tests and, and such over in West Virginia. Um, I was pleased to see we're looking at six nines plus uh, and I, I did notice in passing, I think that the, the West Virginia facility is considered a TSDF under the hazardous waste standard. So it does have a pretty rigorous set of reduction, you know, um, and capture efficiency in terms of the thermal unit there. But I just wanted to, if we could look at that at some point, that would be very helpful. And I realize that is well beyond what you have to have to present as part of this application process, but it saves us a FOIA request over to West Virginia, and it would be very helpful. And then the last thing is Byron had had asked, and and you had, you had responded that the the data on your your monitoring that you're going to be doing, the testing that you're going to be doing, is all required to be reported. It would be helpful if you don't already have one. You might to have a local page on your website so that a neighbor, myself, Byron, somebody who's who's interested in in you know what's going on, can look at and say, here are the current permits that we have. Here are information, here's testing, here's whatever, in one place that you can access in Louisville without going on Echo, without going on all these other web, you know, web bases. Kind of similar to what the what the uh, power plants are now having to do with their compliance with the uh, CCR, with the coal combustion residuals. You know, they're having to do a, a web page. And so I think it'd be real helpful to do that because it also encourages direct communication. I love the fact that we are talking as opposed to relying on Rachel and Matt to mediate our conversation. And I know that that, whenever that happens, you know, it's a it's a good thing, right? Um, there may be some tension sometimes, but I think it's always a good thing that the neighbors are talking to them, to their, their industrial neighbor, as opposed to asking somebody else to mediate it. So I just want to express my appreciation. And uh, Matt, Rachel, thank you. And uh, Sarah Lynn, I want to thank you and, and uh, your engineer for taking the time to, to give some feedback on it. I was pleased to hear Matt say that the shift, and of course, it's not a shift from being a stationary source for, for um, you know, traditional dis uh, emissions. It's, it's We're talking about area source just for the HAPs under the STAR program or under the federal HAP program. But the idea that there is kind of a gradual off-ramp, I think, you know, it's, it's the old Reagan thing of trust but verify. You know, I think we were all pleased to see Kimor's having access to the capital to put the plants, put the new equipment in place to uh, to capture the emissions. You know, and I know it's always a fight when you're an environmental engineer fighting with somebody else over the access to capital to put pollution control equipment on as opposed to doing an expansion. So we appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Fitz. All right. I see yeah. Ebony Neil Cochran has her hand up if you want to go. 
So I'm not an engineer, and of course I've lost my notes. I had tons of questions. But it seemed strange to me. It seems like everything that's that's being said in this permit application is something that we have to take the word of Comores for. And I'm wondering if that's a normal thing to not have to demonstrate either pre or post, well, really pre-approval of the permit. Like, so it's almost like Comores gets to submit their application. This is what they say. Uh, there was even one point in there, um, it was either, I can't remember which document it was, they refer to a designer of a p piece of equipment, a David somebody, who says that the equipment has 100% efficiency. It's just like, where ha was that demonstrated? Has that been demonstrated? How does APCD go about being informed enough to even make the decision to say, yes, we approve this, if we're only going by the word of commuters versus demonstration? So I, I okay. hope that was, there was a question sure, in there. Sure. And, and we can come back to you too, but I will add, first, I think, uh, you know, there is an element of self-policing in these types of permits, but I want to point out that the permit is really the starting phase, that we also do unannounced on-site inspections. We oftentimes require testing, which I've heard is a concern here that we certainly want to consider some of that. There, the permits are reviewed by our staff. For that 100%, I will agree, that's really not something we ever accepted, but it was in their application and maybe we should have responded back and noted that in our review that it wasn't quite right. But we have actually been using a lower number than that. But your point is well taken and I think that we need to take a good look and make sure we're requiring that, that follow-up and that verification. But I think occasionally the permit can seem like the only aspect of the regulation of these sources. So I want to you know, note that we have a really good compliance team that reviews all those test results, those compliance reports, goes out and does those inspections. Um, but your point about trusting, there is some elements of that. You know, the risk of misleading is pretty strong, but, um, and this is kind of a bad comparison, but we have a local meat processor who has multiple uh, USDA inspectors on site whenever they're running. And this is a little different. And, and I think that's something that the profession needs to think about. Uh, but I want to assure you that none of their statements are blindly accepted. Again, that 100% efficiency um, was really an absurdity that we did not process in it, but we did not document that in anything uh, that was made available to the public. So uh, some good points, things we really do need to think about, but there is more to this regulation, uh, this uh, regulating process than simply looking at application, giving a permit and assuming they're in compliance from there on out. There's a lot of follow-up. Uh, Tina Halbig has her hand up. Tina Halbig with the United Nations Association of Kentucky and also Floyd's Fork Environmental Association. I first read about the thermal oxidizer, I believe that DuPont was using in North Carolina or installing. I was very impressed that it was guaranteed to remove 99.99% of PFAS. And uh, so I'm very hopeful that uh, you will get very good results. Do you know also, uh, do you have PFAS at the uh, Kimura's plant? We do not have PFAS at the Camores plant. We, we make the HDFC-22 that goes to Washington Works and then it goes to other facilities and then the, the, fluorinate, the fluoro products are developed downstream. But no fluoropolymers. Correct. At other facilities. We just make the HDFC-22 and that is the feedstock product and that goes. But it's not technology looks very good. Thank you. Tell you, I'm really am impressed at the turnout and I hope the folks are learning some stuff. But Ebony, if you'd like to go. Yeah. So again, I'm no engineer, but 
you know, have asked questions of other folks. And I believe there is a factor that you all put in the permit, AP42, if I'm not mistaken. No, that is the uh, mission factor library that EPA has. Uh, I don't believe it's in this exact permit, but it's used at this facility and some of their application covered other components than what's in this permit. Ah, okay. It's definitely in the application. Yes. Yeah. AP42 is used. Yes. Just to provide a little info, and I'm not trying to speak for you, but last year EPA put out a, what they call a bulletin, uh, which I haven't seen many of, kind of a warning. And it notes that AP42 are some pretty rough estimates. I will say that over my 20 years, EPA has specifically trained me on how to use AP42 for plant-specific emissions, but um, they are not the most accurate. And so uh, we certainly have to make estimates at times, but when it's important, we need to do more direct measurement, have more of a closer look. So what I believe AP42 was used for in their application, and I'll admit the district does use it for our emission inventories, was for their gas, natural gas boilers. So those do emit and pollution's never good, but we're still at the district in a process of uh, deciding where it is best to get that extra data. And I will admit that natural gas boilers are not at the top of that list. So we're processing that bulletin, certainly with more complex processes, processes with a little more potential for bad emissions, uh, we shouldn't be using AP42. So that's more of a summary than any kind of final determination. Um, And that's something that, you know, I think we all knew AP42 were rough estimates, but uh, it was some of our better estimates when we have, you know, hundreds of processes around. So the shoes got to fit. We got to find the right spot. How, uh, you know, our power plants have continuous monitoring systems in the stacks. And I think certainly that's a fair requirement when you're talking about thousands of tons of emissions. And that's been an ongoing process to decide even before that bulletin, uh, where is a rough EPA estimate good enough? Where is a higher order design estimate good enough? And where do we need testing? So those are really uh, important issues and uh, things we need to continue to think about. To me, this is just a good example of where we need to do local verification. Uh, In the solid waste business many years ago, the EPA published a study done by a consultant that said, the typical U.S. city, if you go through all of their trash that they put in the landfill, 25% is yard waste and 15% is paper, and they just kept breaking it down. And, you know, a lot of time has passed and things have changed, and yet lots of people want to keep still using these design factors, and we just have to say no. And instead now what we do is we take dumpsters and we dump them out on the ground and we separate it into lots of piles and weigh it so that it really reflects Louisville. And I just think that um, I want to clarify that Elkan's point is in this particular situation, we think it's appropriate to do ground truthing. I do not know if that means continuous emissions testing quarterly or something in between. But I will say, having spent a lot of my career dealing with wastewater where we have to test every day, multiple parameters and other parameters weekly and other parameters monthly and other parameters quarterly, It just seems to me like we should be requiring something that will give the public comfort that our needs are being met. I think that's a good point. And I think that's something that we've seen really over the years. Uh, Certainly this bulletin changes things or or puts a little more emphasis on that, especially in the start of this, you know, 60s and 70s era environmental movement, there had to be estimates. Um, And certainly uh, there's still a time to make some estimates, but, you know, we're evaluating that bulletin. We're looking at each renewal, each construction permit at Uh, what the best way to get that information is. And I am fairly hopeful, and I'm not a super positive person, but that uh, the low-cost sensors, 
the improvements to technology uh, might put some of us engineers out of work. If you can simply put a pretty low cost device in a stack and know what's coming out, it would be great for the environment, great for air quality and bad for some of us. But I hope to see, I hope to put myself out of work for a number of reasons. Um, Me too. Uh, but you know, that, that is a really important issue. I think that's something that we do need to think about for all permits, but this permit as well. And in some cases, especially with a newly proposed product project, you might take an application with an AP42 factor. And really when we write a permit, we're saying it looks like you're set up to comply, but it's not saying stamp of approval, you're in full compliance forever. That's where you may issue a permit on AP42, follow up with stack testing to see what's really there and deal with the outcomes of that test. I will note, and, and, and this I can't guarantee on every process, but a lot of testing shows that AP42 was a little high in its estimates, but I'm sure there's examples where it's low. So uh, a serious thing, uh, certainly need to evaluate and look to EPA and other states and locals for where are they finding meaningful, more direct data measure or emission measurements and see if we can't, you know, learn from the bigger group. I think I see Corinne has her hand up again. I, I just want to jump in real quick on this question of the AP42 and the emission factors. There is not a chapter in the AP42 library on emission factors from producing Freon 22. That chapter doesn't exist. So to that point, because we have a very complex chemical process, we've had to do the calculations using the equipment we have on site, using the throughputs, using the concentrations, and we've developed the emission factors that have been in each uh, permit application that the facility has shared with the district. And we've reviewed that math and the calculus and said, this is where this comes from. And that, that's all been vetted through the district. With our, with our powerhouse, we have inline uh, continuous emission monitoring system for the nitrogen oxides and the carbon monoxide. So for those big criteria pollutants, we are doing direct monitoring and all that gets rolled up in our quarterly reports to the district under the NOx rack plan. Uh, we're only using the AP42 for those very speciated emission factors where it's literally thousands or tens of thousands of a pound per million BTU. That's where we're using the AP42 because natural gas is natural gas and like Matt said, they're, they're usually Air on the side of over exaggeration, but the numbers are so small to begin with. But how many millions of BTUs do you burn? We know what we know what the gas throughput at the at the front at the powerhouse. Yeah. Is. What I'm trying to say though is, even if the constituent elements of that gas are very, 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 very small, if you're burning a very, very large quantity, it still results in a large mass, and so does it result large mass. It results in a very small number. Oh, I, I don't have that spreadsheet in front of me, but you know, that, that's all in our inventory state. Well, call me an academic, but um, I would love to see footnotes or endnotes that source and qualify all this stuff because it just helps the reader to understand and develop trust and focus on what's unfinished. Right, right now, our focus is getting this equipment in so that we can capture these greenhouse gases and achieve that upwards of 99%. And, and to the point where uh, the question was raised, we know we're going to get well over 99% capture. We're, you know, predicting 99 point something really nice. And uh, we, we dialogue every single month with our Robertown Community Advisory Council, and I am absolutely certain that we'll be pleased to report what those actual uh, emission capture rates are, because we know it's going to be good, and we're looking forward to doing that. And thank you. For those of you who aren't aware, the Robertown Community Advisory Council meets each month and that may be a place where sharing that information is a great place to provide that and then follow up with an easily accessible report for non-members. I believe Ebony has her hand up. 
So I just want to uh, remind everyone in this meeting that when I'm a person who lives in one of the areas that's impacted by environmental injustice. And so when we hear people saying, oh, we're just, it's just going to be a minuscule amount or it's just going to be a small amount. It's, it's very important for you all to take into consideration cumulative impacts and how um, when you say it's just a little, your little bit is adding to the little bit of all of these industries who are emitting hazardous chemicals that are affecting actual human beings. So I just want to just just remind people of that, you know, little bit is is very relative. So your little bit is adding on and, and it's not good. It's it's a bad amount, whatever you're putting out there. So that's why it's important that when it comes to talking about the efficiency of equipment, when it comes to um, maintenance of equipment, there's been plenty of people, and this is not really Kamur's specific, but to me, if a permit doesn't have some post-testing, a certain frequency of testing after the project is done, then that doesn't mean much to me. So that's just a reminder. So we we got to remember cumulative impacts and remember that actual human beings are being affected by these things. Good points. Good points. So I see uh, Wallace has his hand up. Um, I will join in saying I um, applaud APCD for holding this meeting. It uh, certainly has been highly informative. And uh, by golly, it reminds me of how complicated trying to regulate a large industrial facility is. And um, boy, it's been a while since I've studied AP 42. But what I draw from the discussion is that the potential to pollute is going to go down from this permit. The actual emissions will go down some. That's good, but there still will be hazardous air pollutants. There still will be volatile uh, organic compounds emitted. There still will be some um, greenhouse gas emissions, these highly potent uh, hydrochlorofluorocarbons. So I would like to suggest to Ken Morrison, maybe it would be good if they tried to offset that by doing some outreach as a good neighbor to the community. Perhaps um, sharing their expertise with the local science classes in the schools, or I don't know, having a science fair annually with some prizes for local school students. Just something like that, I think, might help us feel a little bit better about uh, what otherwise is Admittedly, a large industrial facility with some negative impacts for the community. So I thank you for hearing my suggestion. I, I love this question and I can't believe yes, it's just today. We got approval from corporate, approval for Comores to donate a five-year renewable grant to the Louisville Regional Science and Engineering Fair at $4,000 a year. So that's $20,000 a year over five years to the Science Fair. I'm on the board of the Science Fair and we have a, a local committee that's um, the ChemFest partnership where we're selecting a middle school to help them develop their science programs, their STEM programs, and mentor middle schoolers, because that's that's just where this is all going. And I know Julie wants to speak to this too. Hi, I'm Julie Johnson. I'm the, the planner here at, at the Louisville Works facility. Part of our corporate responsibility commitments is not just around capturing emissions. It's, it's really advancing STEM in the community. Uh, we um, 
really uh, announced a program called Futures of Chemistry Scholars. Um, and, and we're working on developing what that, that program is going to be looking like. And uh, one of our, our other colleagues uh, has actively been working for the past year on what, what we're calling ChemFest. It'll be partnering with a, a local, local school and advancing that. So you're absolutely right. We want to be partners with the local local community. We want to advance the programs. I know I've, I've spoken with, with uh, several folks trying to build those com commitments out. Um, you know, whether, whether it be in, in mentorship, we've worked with Kane Run. I know that's a popular school here in, in the area, but also looking at, at other school systems here um, and, and the local colleges starting that, that, that relationship, um, you know, to, to really make a difference in, in advancing STEM education across the community. Sarah Lynn, I think you have your hand up. I do. Uh, Ebony's last question inspired an idea. In the world of wastewater treatment, we have something called waste load allocation and something called TMDL, which if I recall correctly, stands for total mass daily load. And what we do is we look at all of the dischargers on a particular stream, the quantity that they are discharging to the stream, the quality or lack thereof of what they're discharging, and we compare the sum total and the spacing of those discharges on the stream against what we call a water quality standard. And if we can't achieve the water quality standard by giving everybody the waste load allocation that they want, we have to start cutting everybody back on a proportional basis so that we can maintain a healthy stream. And I'm wondering, and I ought to know the answer to this, but I'm not confident that I do, so I'm going to ask, is there anything analogous to that system for air pollution here in Louisville. Is it simply the STAR program or is, do we have anything else that I'm forgetting about? Not exactly the same, but you know, the, the classic example is the NAC standards. So we have a lot of rules that tell the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. We have a lot of rules that tell plants, if you run this kind of process, you have to meet these limits. And, uh, but there's also that overriding, what's the maximum that can be in the ambient air? And it's, it's a, probably a little slower than the process you're talking about. But when we discover through monitoring that we're over those levels, then it doesn't matter if you're complying with your permit. We have to look for more things to do to bring that back down. With toxics, it's not quite the same. But you know, we, we look at cumulative impacts uh, from a plant. So it's not just one in a million per chemical per process. Uh, there are also cumulative goals. But I think that looking at those you know, first other regulated sources nearby, but also those area sources, those lesser regulated sources. And, and I don't uh, want to tell you I have a plan for this or have some quick answer, but you're hearing a lot in the profession and a lot from the public about cumulative impacts. And I think we've got to get there sooner rather than later. But I think it also, uh, for a lot of folks, is including, you know, not just air or environmental impacts. You know, what else is in a community and, 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 and really outside of my lane, but, you know, for the folks that work at these chemical plants, who are also exposed, you know, uh, I will say a lot of regulators don't live in the more polluted areas or near the industrial facilities, but, you know, a lot of the plant workers are there eight plus hours a day, and they rarely have the same concerns that a neighbor might have. But it's the same facility. I think if you're making your living off a plant, if you know a little, if it's not as mysterious, to, and there's a lot of things at play than just each chemical and each limit, but we don't have a good answer for that cumulative impacts. I know the greater we is working on that. You hear that a lot. I don't want to uh, overstate that we do have that or, or tell you that's all been covered, but that is on the radar. That is something that we need to get to and, and, you know, make that, you know, even Wallace's point of science fairs and things that 
we all get some good and some bad from these products and industrial processes, uh, but not fairly. And it's not spread out that fairly. And, that, and that's something that traditionally we haven't had a tool for. Right. Rachel, do you have something? I do. And Sterling, you raise a really good point. You know, for us, as Matt said, those national ambient air quality standards are what we use as our continuous improvement process of the Clean Air Act to strengthen those standards based on the best protective health science of the time. Uh, EPA is required to review those every five years. We go through a planning process, and then we make reductions to bring our area into attainment with those standards. The multi-pollutant stakeholder group work that has recently concluded for the uh, 2015 ozone standard has completed a report that's on our website. But while we were looking at ozone, we were also looking to see not only how we could reduce that, but what other actions might also reduce, for example, particulate matter or air toxics, and really looking at a multi-pollutant strategy we think that's something that's on our horizon. Uh, that would be a, a new regulatory approach, and I hope that we'll be working towards that in the very near future and, and actually coming out and working with the public on what that would look like. So to Matt's other point, there are these regulatory programs that we've put into place. Those include our prevention of significant deterioration and new source review programs that help us look at new development. Uh, one other place that coming back to the kind of cumulative impacts that might be outside of the APCD's actual regulatory jurisdiction. The Land Development Code is currently going through an equity review and focusing on those environmental justice issues that arise because where things are situated within our community and looking at that Land Development Code to see what revisions are needed there to mitigate and hopefully help avoid future uh, issues, but really what strategies could we employ, not just with APCD, but community-wide, to mitigate decisions that have been made in the past? So with that, I see Byron Barber's hand is up, and I'll turn it over to him. Uh, it was, I was just going to speak to the point about what uh, the statement Kamora's made about public relations, and it, I guess it kind of ties into equity. Um, but when it comes to strategizing how you, you know, increase the balance and how you impact negatively impacting communities, I think greater transparency and access to information so communities can advocate for themselves goes a lot further than just doing things like science fairs and things like that. Because I think materially, an organization like Comores would benefit more from the PR of doing those types of events than what actually materializes in the community from having access to what is perceived to give communities more access to STEM. So I would just, I would just challenge everybody, including the district, to consider. I think it's much more valuable for community to have access to what's happening to them in a very accessible way, as opposed to, you know, pouring into things that are supposed to give communities more access to STEM, but we don't really have a quantifiable number on how that translates. Yeah, in just one more point, in terms of equity, you should always be thinking about how does this benefit community in a way that doesn't benefit me more if you're already in an empowered position, because otherwise equity just becomes a replacement for diversity or inclusion. And it should mean, it should mean more than that. All right, Corinne's hands up. I just want to thank Byron real quick and say, you know, and that's why we're anxious to get started on this project, because the way we see it, this, this project is a win-win-win. It's going to reduce those HFC 23 emissions by a heck of a lot, and it's also going to reduce the VOCs, and it's also going to reduce the HAPs. So we're, we're glad to be part of this. And I will note, it's very challenging to make this information available. You know, even as a government person, we're, uh, we're required to, and most of us want to. It, it's really complicated stuff, so we appreciate that kind of input and probably could use some advice on good ways to have that information more readily available for folks. So how can I make an official comment? So I think the first thing to say is we've got one more week. So next Tuesday, the 18th, we will close the comment period. 
one easy way is to go to the APCD proposed actions page. There's a red link at the top. You will hit that. It will ask you, are you trying to do something about a permit, a regulation? There's a box to type in the permit number that I think we've corrected to say, or company name. Sometimes we have multiple permits out, so it helps us to know that. But I know trying to find the permit number and stuff can be a hassle. So if you just type a company name, if you type uh, greenhouse gas, you know, we, we'll, we'll try to, to, to make it as easy as possible. But click that button. That'll give you a form to fill out to submit a comment. You can also email to airpermits at louisvilleky.gov, or you can mail or hand deliver to our offices at 701 West Ormsby, Suite 303-40203. Again, we're open for another week. If anyone has any difficulties finding that stuff, uh, my direct number is 502-574-6714, but also 574-6000. We don't always have great answers or... Uh, a thorough enough response, but we do not want to make it difficult to put a comment in to express your opinion. So um, if, if anybody's having trouble, please reach out to us and we'll try to make it a little bit easier. I did want to put in a shameless plug for the upcoming meeting of the Global Metro Air Pollution Control Board. That's our regulatory board. They'll be meeting on January the 19th at 10 a.m. I hope that you'll join us uh, for that meeting either virtually or if your schedule doesn't allow, we post a video of that meeting, the minutes, and all the materials on our website. So if you have questions about uh, accessing material to the board or attending those meetings, please also reach out and we'll get you connected there. Sarah I have been an environmental activist, believe it or not, since I was 13 years old, and that is longer than I might want to admit. Um, I do have a Medicare card now. And in all of my experience, nobody has done a better job and has shown me that they intend to include the public better than APCD. And I want you to know that I recognize it and appreciate it. I'll thank you for that. I'll tell you a lot of folks here do better and help me and, you know, to do that. But I, I appreciate that comment. Because I'm a hard grader. <laughs> I, you know, I think our whole staff wants to be informative, but we have a few folks that really do focus on that and help some of us nerdy permit writers out and things like that. And, and I don't think it fixes all the issues. I, 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 you know, sometimes I run the risk that it's more lip service, but uh, folks do like to understand. They do like to participate. They like to be involved. So those should be the easy things and they're not, but there's some folks who have really put effort in that. So I appreciate those statements. I think the key takeaways are uh, January 18th, comment period closes. I hope this discussion has been helpful, but we need those official comments as well. So please make those. We'll have some additional information on our website. Reach out to the district if you're having any trouble finding that stuff or successfully making a comment. Again, we provide the company an opportunity to respond to those comments. They get a 10-day window. It's not required. If they do provide those, we'll push those back out to the public uh, and include that with our responses, which we are required and, and will do. Make a written response to any of those formal comments. Publish that describing any changes to the permit, any final determinations, how we're how we're proceeding, uh, but that'll be a more formal response. I do think we're kind of wrapping up. Really appreciate the turnout. I appreciate everybody's patience. I think we're going to attempt to do more of these. I think they're more helpful than some of our other processes. But I don't, you know, don't forget we also do other tight you know board meetings. We have other kinds of seminars and presentations. So get signed up for our mailing list. Check our website often. I believe we've just fairly recently gone out on Facebook. So really trying to make it easy for folks to know at least the topics and things that are going on, and we'll continue to work to provide that higher level of transparency and information. 
And that's how the public meeting concluded on January 11th of the Air Pollution Control District. And that's all the time we have for today here on Truth to Power. If you want more information and you want to make a public comment, go to louisvilleky.gov APCD. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.